it's literally just nobody's fault. Well, so. I, it's true, and I would be, I'm, I'd be even later if we were trying to meet in person. So sure. Hey, uh, so wait, are you a late person? I am chronically habitually late. Yes. Are you too, Brian? No, man. I'm hyper punctual uh, as a result of probably like uh, ADHD as a kid and my natural inclination to get kind of, I could get lost in my own world. So like, no, I'm, I'm super punctual, but here's a question for you in, in your people pleasing way, as you describe in all your books and as you um, want to avoid conflict, though you're fine to have debate, doesn't, does being late, create a kind of drama that actually uh, uh, erodes the very thing you're trying to foster. Yeah, probably. Although it's complicated because part of the reason I'm late is because of my people-pleasing tendencies. It's just yes. that the person I'm ha I happen to be meeting with right now is the one that I'm worried about pleasing. And that means whoever's on my schedule and next is on the back burner, which I feel guilty about. Uh, I've got, I think I've gotten a little better over time, but I think if you ask the people who work with me, they'd tell you more often than not, they just assume that I'm going to be five to 10 minutes late and then they're not mad at me. They plan that they plan for it. Yeah. It's an interesting dynamic. And I would ask, I would wonder having read your book. So, uh, I've read all this. Hey, this is the moment of Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. My guest today is a brilliant person. Uh, Adam Grant, who has written three books. Uh, I've read all three. I haven't read whatever your uh, dissertation was, but um, if you had to do one for the masters <laughs> in psychology, I haven't read that, but an organizational uh, psychology, but all three books are just excellently written and, and really compelling reads. The new book is coming out as you're listening to this podcast today. It's called Think Again. And Adam, uh, we've talked a couple of times and, and online, uh, we've Zoomed before, but uh, thanks for doing this. It's nice to see you. No, I'm delighted to be here, Brian. I'm now wondering if uh, <laughs> if I should mention the, uh, the doctorate, not just the master's. I, I feel like this whole Dr. Biden thing, I would have I just ignored it before, but now I'm like, no, no, no. We need to, we need to mention- oh, Harvard, no, I knew I got the whole thing right. Harvard, Michigan, and what was after Michigan? I did master's and doctorate at Michigan. Got it. Okay, fine. Well, I'm an Ohio State fan, so I don't credit. Boo. I don't credit. I'm not really. I'm not really an Ohio State fan. Uh, did did just, you notice how instinctively I booed though? I didn't. I didn't even think about it. it. Just came out. Even after writing about the fact that you shouldn't. Even after writing about the fact that this very reflex is a problem. Yeah. Shoot. I need to rethink this, don't I? I. I. Okay. My my first instinct is to defend myself here. And I'm going to try to not do that. But in my defense, what I would have said if I were defending myself is, well, what I didn't like was saying yuck when I found out that a woman who works with Holocaust survivors uh, went to Ohio State half a century ago. And yes. I was disgusted by my own disgust. But I think it's still perfectly appropriate for me to boo a clearly inferior team. Well, and especially with a smile on your face and in this context where I made the joke first and you were playing back, actually, which was uh, actually you were bonding with me instead of booing and all that stuff happened really quickly. And I'm thinking about all of it, having read, having read the book, uh, which is great because it does make you think. I have a whole bunch of places I want to start, Adam, because there's one thing I've really not heard you talk about much. Now you may have, but you just slide it into the book very quickly. Uh, and I definitely want to ask you about it, but I think where I want to start is here. Your premise in the book and you, you get it in a bunch of different ways, is the danger in calcifying our uh, worldview and our points of view uh, without the opportunity to uh, chip away at that calcification and lubricate the joints and, and look anew and how uh, if we could find ways to be open to changing our minds, we could have more engaged, meaningful lives and like the culture would uh, work in a better way. Is that fair? That's a great summary. You should, you should write TV shows and produce them. Thanks. You just, uh, you just distilled a whole book into a great elevator pitch. 
Good. Luckily, you've already written it. it'll be a bestseller by the time it's out tomorrow. So you don't need my elevator pitch. But, but man, as much as I enjoyed the book, and as I say, I read the first two books and I've read um, the Cheryl book too. Um, and I loved everything she said about you in the introduction of that book. But your book, this book, I think everyone should read it because it does make you think a lot and rethink. And But mostly it made me sad, dude. And uh, it's a lingering sadness. I've been sad for days reading the book. Really? Yeah, I have. And I'm so sorry. I, I didn't no, set out to write this book saying, how do I sink Brian Koppelman into a deep despair? No, but um, but I think it's really, really worth talking about where you find hope because I don't find any in your book. And I found tremendous hope in the other books. And in talking to you, when I've spoken to you, I have found tremendous hope. But here, you, the reason I brought up Michigan, I mean, you, you, Michigan and you booed, was you, you talk in the book about the way in which we um, are tribal and lock into those tribal, uh, those tribal loyalties and how intractable it is. And you talk about, talk about Yankees and Red Sox for a second, because I'll tell you what made me sad, but just talk about what, because I think it's a decent way to talk about the problem in a way. Sure. This, this to me, it's so interesting. This is one of the most hopeful studies that I've ever done from my perspective, which is I, I really wanted to study how we could get people to rethink their stereotypes and their prejudices. And it didn't seem like I was going to make a lot of progress with Democrats and Republicans or with Israelis and Palestinians. I thought sports would be fascinating because people are passionately attached to their team. In many cases, they hate their rivals more than they love their own team. And if we could get people to rethink that, maybe we learn something new about how to change these you know, kind of polarized dynamics. And as you know, I, I found a lot of steps that didn't work, but one of the, the simplest and most surprising exercises that did move the needle uh, was something that Tim Kundra and I tested, which is just asking people to reflect back on how if their life circumstances had unfolded differently, they might root for a different team. So if you're, are you a Yankees fan, Brian? I no, I'm somebody who's, oh, yes, I'm a Yankees fan, but I'm also, and when I was a kid, I wore an official Red Sox haters uniform to a Red Sox game. But, but as Amazing. a, as a, I did the whole thing, like Boston sucks was the hat and the shirt was official Red Sox hater. I was 14 years old. Um, go to tennis camp near there. And I was a pretty serious tennis player. And, and, um, and I loved that day of engaging in the ride. It was hilarious. Right. But I'm not that person anymore. Um, uh, yeah, I don't root for the Red Sox, but like I'm Yankees Mets. I'm, I'm happy if either New York team wins and it it's, but I'm a passionate sports, uh, fan. And, I, but the, even when they read that paragraph that you, you uh, highlighted and showed these people, well, one, you you had you used the word absurd, like how absurd it is to feel that in the in that paragraph, right? The feeling you wanted them to have was how absurd it is to uh, look at these people in, in this way. But it seemed like the choice then was to totally disengage from something that was connected to their family, their father. Often, basically, the moment you and it ties into the matrix thing. The moment you reveal the absurdity of it, you're taking something kind of important away from them. But also, it didn't seem like it, it worked a little, but it didn't seem like you said, it didn't change the thing dramatically. Well, I, I don't think you undo a lifetime of prejudice in, you know, in a single experiment that lasts for 10 minutes, right? I think the, you know, the, the reflection and the changes in our interactions need to yeah. unfold over time. I think what we're doing is planting seeds, but I don't think we're taking anything away from people. I think that people still enjoy rooting for their team. They just don't take it as personally when they lose and they don't feel the same hatred toward the other team. Um, you know, they still, they still strongly prefer that their team wins. They still, so let's, let's talk about the younger version of Brian. Yes. Right, you, the version of you that wore the Red Sox suck or I hate the Red Sox yeah, shirt. Both. Right? It was both things, yeah. Yeah, so that, that version of you, you don't have to stop loving the Yankees. You just have to stop hating Red Sox fans and say, you know what? If I was born in Boston, maybe I would even be a Red Sox fan. So these people aren't bad. 
Sure. I never hated Red Sox fans. I just hated the Red yeah. Sox, right? I still root against the Red Sox. I just, I never uh, hated the fans, but, but you leave something out that I think is really important. And I know you left it out on purpose. We're a country built on faith. And as such, the way people are indoctrinated and inculcated in religious beliefs, in patriotic beliefs that verge on the religious, I don't understand where this technologies, the techniques in your book give us any footing at all. Right. Okay. So let me help you with that. I just finished a couple more experiments with Tim where we took the Yankees Red Sox idea and we brought it into a much more serious conflict between gun rights and gun safety advocates. Yeah, I read, I read, I read it. Yeah. Oh no, this is, this didn't make but the book. But it's in the book, in the book you talk about, um, uh, in the abortion thing, you talk about the gun rights conversation as well. And different, different, um, different, different research. Okay. So this is, this is gun rights and gun safety advocates where we ask them to do the same thing that the Red Sox and Yankees fans did. So it turns out if you are a gun safety advocate, if we just ask you to reflect on how you might hold different views, if you had grown up in a hunting family, uh, you actually hate the other side less. And then on the flip side, right, if you're somebody who's very strongly in favor of gun rights, and we ask you to think about what beliefs you might have if you grew up in Columbine, you also are much more open to the other side. Um, and not just attitudinally, you're also less likely then to try to sabotage the other side when you get into a conversation with them. And I think that is potentially good news, right? Again, it's, it's a, it's a one-shot experiment. We're asking you to just do a little bit of reflection, but we make you hate the person who has different views from you, less than you did before. And I think that's a step toward planting seeds that we need more of in this society. But how would you speak to the question of us being a faith-based faith country and the entrenched belief systems that are not only taught at home, but taught sort of over and over again, culturally, and, uh, and, 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 and whose purpose is to make us not engage with reason, really, whether you believe or you don't believe, uh, I'm saying whether I believe or not, I, uh, I'm, I'm not, even if I'm not saying their beliefs are wrong, it's a, a, a system of belief based on um, a handed down received wisdom, not on new questions. And it's so prevalent that how does, that I think it's, my guess is, and I wonder how you talk about this, my guess is it sets us up to make many decisions and, and align ourselves based on similar emotional responses. That's very interesting. So you're, you're, the, you're the first person now to do two things. One is to be depressed by the book, right? The, the consistent feedback from people has been, everyone I've talked to has said, this is my favorite book, that their favorite book that I've written, uh, which I, I, I'm I, recommending the book. Let me be clear. I recommend <laughs> the book. No, 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 no. I just, I think it's interesting. And, and one of the, when I ask people, why did you like this better than the others? A lot of people have said it's more uplifting. It's more entertaining. It's more hopeful. So I'm, I'm fascinated by this, but also nobody has raised this faith religion as a potential barrier to reasoning and evidence. And I, I don't, I, that, that feels to me like a little bit of a false dichotomy. Okay. Um, in part because, you know, look, I, I would say that some of the world's best physicists are hyper-religious, right? And oftentimes people who are deeply embedded in science, um, they, they have faith in part because they know how impossible it is to know. Right. Uh, and you know, I, I think it's possible to hold two of those, uh, those worldviews simultaneously. But also if you were concerned that in general, being a person of deep religious faith made you less likely to question your, you know, your deeply held convictions on, on political issues or on abortion, right? Then, 
I would say there might be some good news for you, which is if you look at the nationally representative Pew data from what, 2009 to 2019, there is a significant decline in religiosity and a significant spike in agnosticism and atheism. And so you could say, yeah, in some ways the country was founded on, you know, on Christianity, except we also were founded on separation of church and state. And in some ways we still are a very Christian country, except that's declining. And so if that were the cause of a lot of these problems, you would think polarization would be getting better, not worse. And so I'm a little skeptical at the Wait, what do you mean by I don't understand that sentence. What do you mean that polarization would be getting better if, 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 if that were the case? What do you mean? Okay, so polarization's climbed over the last few years, right? Yes, yeah, yeah, no doubt about it, yes. Yeah, and so if, if the fact that people have, have if, the, if the fact that religious faith is too strong um, is causing people to be unwilling to let go of their extreme beliefs, then the decline of religious faith should also mean that people become less extreme so and we're less polarized. Let's get it in a different way then, right? Uh, it's not current religious beliefs exactly. First of all, so I know those numbers, you know, you're talking about a slide of eight or 9% in the religious to atheist thing. It's not a big number. It's a lot and, of people though, in a country yes, of a, over 300 a, million. It's a lot of people. But I think what I'm trying to get at is dogma. Yeah. is that we are a culture, yes, we were founded on those beliefs, but we are also a culture, it ties into the sports thing, man. It is, it's dogma, gener, multi-generational dogmatic thinking and programming in a way. Mm -hmm. And like, I guess part of what made me say is, so you're such an, I agree with what you said, right? You're such an entertaining writer. And not only that, and you know, such a good thinker and the book is super fun to read on the, not only just on the surface, but like the individual stories. And it's fun to play the guessing games. You know, I, I knew the moment you mentioned the law order person who that was, and it was fun waiting for you to get there and all that stuff. Right. But, uh, but I've also read Kahneman and Tversky's work and I've read behavioral economics for a long time. And I've read Seligman's books and I know what you think about happiness. Like, um, and Jonathan hates books. And all of this thinking that you've codified into new experiments on uh, what causes people to change their minds. We've done, known a lot of this for a long time. And we are the most polarized we've ever been. You found some techniques that are different, but we've understood the triggers for a long time. Interesting. And we haven't... Uh, and it's gotten worse. The more people, Michael Lewis wrote the Kahneman Tversky book in a very pop, exciting, fun way. It was read by 5 million people in the worst moment of separation, division, and lack of rethinking we've ever had. How do you think about that? Yeah, that, okay, that's, this is fascinating. Such an, it's such an intriguing question. Uh, so I, I've talked with Danny Kahneman about this a bunch. And, and I love him in your book. That crinkly eye thing is like the best thing in the book to me. Yes. I, I'm, I'm glad I'm glad that resonated because you can, you can picture it. Uh, Amazing. It, I mean, it's so Danny's view is, you know, it's a pretty pessimistic one, right? That we're good at documenting the biases in our thinking. We're not so good at changing them. I'm more optimistic on that. I think part of the reason for that is we spend most of our time as behavioral scientists documenting the biases, right? So <laughs> <laughs> what yeah. do you expect, right? right. You, you tell people their thinking is fundamentally flawed in all these ways. And the best hope out of that, and I would say that's most of what behavioral economics and social psychology has done over the past few decades, the best hope from that is in the rearview mirror, people say, whoops, confirmation bias nine weeks ago, uh, but they don't catch it in real time. And I think what, at least what I wanted to do in writing Think Again and in exploring some of the new techniques is to say, well, it doesn't have to be that way. Right. If you study super forecasters, they can teach you ways to be open minded. Right. They can teach you. Like Brian, one of the most helpful things I learned that I've adopted since writing the book is when you form an opinion, make a list of the conditions under which you would change your mind. And it keeps you honest. Right. It's as you know, there's I a love that. I love that. Yeah. It's such a simple thing. I'd never been taught that before. Right. I didn't I, I've never seen really any discussion of that idea that, oh, well, maybe we could actually catch this ex ante as opposed to ex, ex post. By, by saying, okay, 
When I'm starting to form an opinion, I'm more flexible. I haven't gotten attached to it yet. And so I can recognize that there are probably some conditions or circumstances or contingencies that would flip it. And if I could identify those up front, then when those happen, I'm a lot more likely to say, oh, that was one that. of those moments where I need to shift. And I guess for me, writing this book was full of those aha moments. And I thought, okay, maybe there's more we can do about opening our own minds, let alone other people's, than I realized. I understand that. I think part of why I am personally engaged in this is I, over the past few years, I did a bunch of stuff. Like I, I followed people online whose views were radically different than mine. I, I read the books. Um, I read the op-eds. I tried to do a bunch of this stuff and it, um, rarely had the effect of changing my mind, but more what I observed was nobody's, how do you deal with the fact that, like, I, I was really interested in what you said about, um, and, and um, I'll say to my audience and, and to you, um, I'm sorry that I'm grasping a little in this conversation, but I was so engaged by the book and it really is so, it's the most timely thing ever because you, you wrote about everything I've been thinking about for the last few years, right? And that's why it's such a perfect time for the book because, uh, I read those behavioral uh, scientists for a reason, right? Because the world looked so fucked to me. And I'm trying to understand why and how we got there and what we can do to get to the other side of it. But I come away, like, I, you know, I heard what you said about, uh, you know, the thing I guess you originally said, which was strong um, opinions lightly held. Mark Andreessen, who I'm very friendly with and love talking to, said that on this podcast. And I thought it was like, one of the smartest things, the way he meant it, which is if you're Mark and you're a super nuanced thinker, you can actually, the strong opinion means make your decisions, right? Um, when you're gonna decide, don't don't halfway. If, you've, if the data lines up for you, just be willing to reverse course. That's what the best poker players do also. But you now have a different take on that. So just talk about that for a second. Yeah, I've I've rethought this idea. So I I wrote about it in in originals. Yeah. I wrote that that having strong opinions weekly held is one way to avoid groupthink. And what I was envisioning is exactly what you're describing with Mark, which I've seen in so many creative teams and you know in world class thinkers, which is they have these passionate feisty debates, and then they're very happy to find out that they're wrong because it means they have a better they, idea or a better. They answer. love it. They love find, Mark loves finding out he's wrong. It's a moment of discovery, right? I learned something. It turns out most people are not wired this way, right? That I, I mean, I've, I've made this mistake systematically throughout most of my career. The moment I express an opinion strongly, people feel like I'm bullying them or I'm trying to prosecute them or I'm preaching at them. And they don't realize that's just how I like to have an argument. And that if you believe something that's maybe a little different than me, my instinct is to go to the polar opposite, to really push the, uh, the boundaries of the discussion and try to figure out, yeah. okay, what do you really think? And it's fun, but most people don't find it fun. And so I guess the way I rethought that was to say, actually, we would all be better off if I came into that kind of debate and said, you know, Brian, I would love to play with this idea for a second, uh, but I actually think we're mostly aligned here and I have a lot of uncertainty about where I really stand. Uh, but, you know, for the spirit of, in the spirit of understanding, you know, where, where we agree and disagree, can we, you know, can we sort this out a little bit and, and see where we, where we fall? And it completely changes the tone of what follows, even though I might say the same things afterward. Right. So that, that's in um, Strongly Opinions Weekly Held in conversation, discussion. But do you still think it's a valid idea in decision making? I don't know. I think... I do think it's hard once once you make a strong commitment to a decision to just re reverse course, right? The about face is is not something we could we can always do that easily, especially you know if you've convinced yourself and the people around you that this is a smart decision. Right? Barry Stone, his colleagues at Berkeley, have spent decades studying escalation of commitment to a losing course of action. Yes, yes. And I mean, you, you capture this all the time on billions. <laughs> People get excited about an investment or a decision and 
initially they're like, yeah, seems like a good idea. And by the time they've committed to it, they get locked in and they can't let go. Yeah. It's the pilot that, that Gladwell talks about, right. Who's uh, keeps making bad decision after bad decision before taking off. And uh, at any point, if any, the other guy in the cockpit would have just been like, dude, uh, maybe we should just, but he was like, well, but seven minutes and, and then, you know, 800 people die or whatever it is. Exactly. And, I had a really interesting conversation about this a few years ago when I met Jeff Bezos. Love him or hate him. I think he's he's obviously a very sophisticated decision maker. And yeah. I, I wanted I've to know. Him, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I wanted to know how does he how does he handle this exact dilemma? So, you know, when when do you go all in? When are you more tentative? When do you hedge your bets? And the way that he unpacked it, I came away thinking, okay, there are two questions to ask yourself. One is how consequential is this decision? Two is how reversible is this decision? And Jeff essentially said, look, if the stakes are high and I can't undo it, I will wait as long as possible. I will procrastinate the hell out of this decision. I will not have any strong opinions because I want all the information flowing to me before I make this really important can't undo choice. Right. But if you relax either one of those conditions and you say, look, it doesn't, it doesn't matter that much, or you can always do a 180, then I'm going to go all in right away and then just stay really flexible and, and be ready to rethink at any moment. And I thought that was a good two by two. Sure. You know, it's funny when we talk about people like um, Andreessen or Jeff or Meg Whitman or whoever we want to talk about. They're, um, they're rarefied. They've proven themselves to be rarefied thinkers and rarefied decision makers and enactors in a way, right? They can enact mm -hmm. these things. Yeah. How, but when I, but, but then, uh, you know, you talk about vaccines a little bit in, in the book and I love that story. That's the hope most hopeful for me. That was the most hopeful story in the book. Um, and I loved it, loved it, loved it, loved it. But we, um, it seems like every issue now becomes so polarized and the thinking goes so far from a place where we want to rethink because even rethinking, like you said, even going, let's tease this up, has been spun to feel like defeat. And so how do we language a new, to, to not people like Mark Andreessen, right? Because yeah. we're not really worried about whether Mark, you know, who invented the internet uh, is holding on to his beliefs too strongly. Like Mark's probably gonna sort it out. But what we're worried about are the people who, uh, you know, b believe, I mean, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm thinking what you just said about if, if someone was at, uh, uh, if they sat down with someone at Columbine, but, you know, two days ago, you and I saw that Congresswoman shouting at David Hogg. And I mean, that's a real life example of what you just said, right? She's had the opportunity to hear David Hogg talk about the experience he had. And yet, follows him down the street shouting at him and a lot of people agree with her. So those people, how do we get them willing to, and ourselves and everybody willing to go, rethinking is not defeat. It is not abandoning everything that's important to people like me. That's a good question. I, I'm torn between three, three different ways of answering it. So let's, maybe, maybe we can go each direction and then see where it takes us. So uh, as, I guess as a preview of where I might go, my first thought is to complicate who those people are a little bit. The second thought is to talk a little bit about strategies. Uh, the third thought is actually to, to get more meta and analyze some of your own thinking about this topic and see if I can invite you to do a little rethinking. Uh, so maybe in order. Yeah, any way you want. I'm game for all of it. Yeah, let's let's try it. So the the first thing is, I, I think if if somebody is you know is is a full on conspiracy theorist, I don't know that I have anything to offer here, right? I didn't I didn't write this book for you know somebody who believes in Jewish space lasers, yes. <laughs> right? Yes. I, I wrote this book for uh, I think the majority of a country of people who are interested in learning. Uh, but also see consistency and conviction as virtues. And I'm trying to maybe take the tension between those two things and tilt a, a little bit towards saying, look, when you change your mind, that doesn't mean you're always a flip-flopper, right? If, if you yes. change it because you're thinking like a politician and you're just trying to lobby for the approval of somebody and you're telling them what they want to hear, yeah. yeah, we don't want that. But if you change it because you encountered better evidence and more compelling logic, that's, that's progress. Right? And we should be celebrating that as strength, not weakness. 
Um, and I, you know, I, we could we could talk at length about how to do that, right? And how to create systems and institutions and cultures uh, where where people who who do say, you know, what I was wrong, and here is now how my thinking has evolved, uh, are held up as our role models. I think that's what we need. That's certainly what what my wife Allison and I are trying to teach our kids. Um, so that's that's the first thought. I think the second thought is there is. There, I, I have been reading a lot since <laughs> turned in think again over the summer. Yes, and now the the conspiracy theory issue is much bigger than I realized, and I would have done a chapter on it if we had seen the whole election fraud <laughs> nonsense. For the paper, will you do it for the? You'll do it for the paperback. I, I think I'll have to actually, in part yeah, I because think you have to. I do. I think you need to do it. Please I, do it. I really want to do it in part for my own learning um, and in part because I feel like I have a responsibility to the reader to try to address that audience. Can I be an early reader? I want to be an early reader. Yeah, I would love that. I really do. Yeah, okay. I, I would love, okay. I, you're, yes. you've already you've already volunteered yourself as part of my challenge network here in the kinds of questions you're asking. So I think, I think I'd learn a lot from the holes you poke in my, in my approach. But I think from, from what I've read about the psychology of conspiracy theories, uh, it doesn't work that well to just straight on debunk them. Right. Uh, what's much more effective is to ask people questions to try to understand how this complicated, almost impossible worldview could function. So, Brian, let's say, for example, um, you believe that the government is pulling the wool over our eyes and vaccines are actually causing autism at alarming rates. What I would do is I would say, you know, Brian, I've, I, yeah, look, I'm not a producer of that kind of research, right? I'm a consumer of, of some of that work as an outsider. Um, I do research for a living as a social scientist. And so, you know, I'm, I, I feel like I'm informed to evaluate the statistical analyses, the meta-analyses, the studies of studies, but the, you know, the actual, you know, what, what are the ingredients in the vaccines and how do those affect the brain? That's obviously not something that I'm, I'm knowledgeable about uh, or really trained to understand. And so can you help me walk through the mechanisms through which what's in vaccines could, you know, could possibly have that cause? And then depending on what you say, um, you know, okay, there are some ingredients in vaccines that I, you know, that I probably want, wouldn't want to put into my kids if I had the choice. And then I want to weigh the costs and benefits of those versus what's the prevalence of the sure. disease. How do you think about that? And then where I would eventually go is I would say, okay, look, my understanding is that the consensus of independent scientists and journalists is that on balance, the benefits of vaccines for the population outweigh the costs. And I want you, can you just help me understand how a conspiracy could maintain that stance. Like, how does this government yeah. that you have claimed is incompetent manage to get all these scientists with tenure to, to all agree with one thing when you can't get scientists to agree on anything unless the evidence supports it? And how, how is there not even just, how are there not two or three journalists who have not wanted to win a Pulitzer by right. exposing the truth about all the suppressed science on vaccines? So, so how does that, um, I read, like I say, I love that part with a local person who's expert at talking to the, the mom and, and the mom then becomes an apostate in her community and, and gets, you know, evangelizes for the, for the vaccines and gives all her kids vaccines. Incredible, beautiful. That one-to-one -one very special person who's gifted at having the conversation to another person ready to have it because she was in a state of high trauma because her one child almost died in the hospital and she was in a peak emotional state and ready to kind of deal with it. And he was trained to meet her in that spot. But I've watched like uh, many uh, pretty educated, smart, trained people sit with other people and try to have these conversations. And it's, it seems that the community opinion, when it's incredibly strong and entrenched, is very hard to dislodge with yeah. log with even logical questions. Well, am I wrong about that? No, I don't. I don't think you're wrong about that at all. I think, yeah, I think when when we're talking about collective delusion, yeah, as opposed to just you know wrongheaded individual beliefs, it's a lot but, harder, but, orders of magnitude. But but even like the word you used, which was the kind of thing that I would say, right? Collective delusion and. But to those people, this is where it gets really tricky. And I, I re so after once um, January 20th happened, I realized I needed a total reset of like my rage button, my outrage button. So I unfollowed all the, I, I was like, I felt that it was so important to be vigilant because I genuinely, I genuinely thought democracy was at stake for a very long time, five years of carrying it. So uh, 
I wanted to re I wanted to just reset. So I don't want to think that they're just in a delusion, like the conspiracy people, it's a mass delusion, right? But the people who's, you know, um, aren't trained in statistics, like I know people, I'm sure you do too, who's, who, who have children who are on the spectrum, who really believe that the day before the vaccine, they weren't. Now we know scientifically it's not true. They're not under a delusion. They're having an uh, emotional, they're, 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 they're finding an emotional truth and, ha and, and so how do we combat this emotional truth when it's not nefarious, it's merely a coping mechanism. But the problem is that coping mechanism fucks with all of us because it's why measles comes back. So how do you attack that? Yeah, I don't, I don't know that I have a silver bullet for that. I, I do think though that, you know, the first thing I would say with my scientist lens is yes. we, we actually don't know in the individual cases. Right. We, we don't know because we only know yeah. on average, you know, is there an effect in a given sample or yes. across many samples? And so I, I actually think I would go at this much more sideways than head on and say, let me, let me first tell you what I can't say. Right. I, I cannot tell you what did or did not cause your child's autism. And we, we still have a lot of uncertainty about the causes. Um, and right there, you're diffusing some of the defensiveness. Right. Sure. Because now really, really I am smart. Yes. Brilliant. Yeah. Yep. I'm not I'm not I'm not trying to, to invalidate your beliefs. I'm telling you this is a mystery. Right. The same way that if you told me like I was wrong about my view on God, I'd be like, I'm sorry, I'm not qualified to weigh in on that. Can't help you there. Um, so I, I would start there. And I think what that does is it brings intellectual humility to the discussion. Sure. I can't I can't tell you to open your mind if I'm not willing to open mine. And I think then the next thing I would do is I would say, all right, look, can we, you know, can we start to just think through um, what's the most credible way to answer this question? So in an ideal case, you know, we do experiments where some people get the vaccine you're worried about and some people don't. And then we look at the rate of autism in each of those groups. Um, can we, you know, can we also agree that any single experiment is flawed? And so in an ideal world, we'd accumulate all those studies. That's called a meta-analysis. Um, you know, let's, so do you, do you agree on that being a good scientific standard? And I, by the way, I haven't, I haven't poured through all that research. I don't know what all the data are going to show, but I think we could have a much more thoughtful conversation if we agree on what rigorous methods would look like. And you don't have to be a scientist to agree on that. We all know what an experiment is, right? And then I would say, okay, let's, let's go and, and look at what those data show. And I would love for you to share with me any data that you found. I've, you know, I'll take a look, I'll share with you data that I've found. And we may not agree on everything, but I think we're going to be closer once we've we've had a conversation about how to have this conversation. And has that worked with any leaders of these movements? I don't know. I don't know that it's been tried, actually. I think the, the problem that I see is we have a lot of experts studying these topics, right? A lot of social scientists yeah. trying to figure out how to do this. Um, and they're doing it with, with the samples they have access to, as opposed to saying, you know what, sometimes the fish stinks from the head. So right. I don't know. Right. No, it's a great because question. you wonder, it's the leaders of them, right? Because as you're saying all this, I have no doubt, like we talk, like that special person who sees that woman in your book or you sitting down with, you know, if you wanted to devote all your time and to have six of these conversations a day, you know, by the end of the year, you would have changed the minds of 900 people, assuming some wouldn't, you know, still would be intractable, but like you're not, that's not how you're going to spend your time. And, and, so what's your hope before we then get to you asking me the questions yeah. I want you to do, but how do we get, how, how do you think about the utility of the book, not just on um, people who read heavily researched nonfiction books or read the first chat, you know what I mean? How do you, uh, because, you know, in, 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 in the same way that um, a few times in the book, you point out, well, that person's already, preaching, you know, Al Gore is preaching to the choir, Ted, you're not totally preaching to the choir, but someone who's read Give and Take and Originals who buys this is like pretty lined up with you um, in some ways. So how do we take this? I don't know. I don't know. But, ben Shapiro recommended be, it on Twitter this week. But that must be part of it. So that's something, but that must be part of your thinking, right? Is, is how to have this become truly or are you not interested in changing, actually changing the way these conversations, I think you are. So how have you thought about broadening it? That's a, it's a good question. I think this is where my expertise ends and yours should take over, right? Which is, 
I know I know how to study these topics. I've built, I hope, a skill set in how to communicate about these topics. Beautifully, yeah, man. Well, Amazing. thank you. No, but but then the the open question is, well, okay, how do you bridge from you know the book and the ideas to real change of behavior and thought? And I, frankly, I'm not trained in how to do that. You you sit at the helm of, you know, of multiple teams, right? That do that for a living by, you know, by wandering onto people's screens. Um, and I think, I guess what I would say to that, Brian, just, I, I'm curious to hear your take, but my reaction would be that what I want people to do when they read this book is to analyze their own thinking. And I yes. can't tell you how many times I have caught myself slipping into, especially pro prosecutor mode, occasionally preacher or politician mode. And I think, you know what? That's not who I want to be. I want to think more like a scientist. I want to be flexible. I want to invest my identity in finding out the truth, not believing that I already have discovered the truth. And that, that has been helpful to my own thinking. I've also found that other people pointed out to me. I just had a colleague the other day say, you're going into lawyer mode again. Didn't you just write a book about not doing that? Sure. And it, you know, it's, it's a great way of holding me accountable. And my, my thought was then that there's probably a role model piece of this that could be powerful when it comes to culture change. So, you know, as I think about the, you know, the, the mental modes of, of preaching, politicking, prosecuting, and, and thinking like a scientist, these exemplars come to mind, right? Like, why do we love Sherlock Holmes as a character? He thinks like a scientist. And I think we all, if you ever, you know, read you know, I start Arthur Conan Doyle, or you watched any of the movies or the show, you have this moment where you think, I would like to think more that way. I would like to talk more that way. And I think it's not crazy to get people to think like that. Um, the question is how? So I, I defer to the person who does it for a living. How would you do that? Well, I, I don't, I mean, I tell stories for a living and I, and it's, you know, highly filtered through what David, and I guess through the, the prism is like, I guess, some part of us prosecuting our worldview through these characters, right? Through that prism. Um, but yeah, and I'm, I'm, I, by the way, there's no, I mean, we referenced Jonathan Haidt on the show. Like I, we've put the stuff in the show many times. Um, for sure, we've put a lot of the work that we've read. It's filtered into the show. Haidt, we quoted directly and um, we're, and who you never know, like, so you put that stuff out there and you never know what that, you never know how, how, how it's going to land, but there's an intention. Basically I read your book and I want everybody to understand and be able to use these tools to unlock our ability to rethink. But then I watch the news or I read the economist and I'm uh, reminded that it seems that what we want is endorphins. And it seems we get the endorphins by engaging in a certain kind of battle and by having a certain kind of fealty that makes us feel a part of something because we are uh, generally you know, lost and isolated. So th that seems hard to overcome. And that's where the sadness, yeah. that's why I get sad. Yeah, no, that's understandable. I. I think this, it, it starts from, for me saying, okay, look, I know of, of three ways to change this dynamic. One is to try to change individuals thinking, right? Which is why I write books. Yes. Two is to try to change cultures. I think that's what you do through your storytelling sure. work, right? Three, and maybe where we're both dissatisfied with what exists today is to change structures. Yes. To say, look, we need to change institutions, um, political institutions and government, the way that the media communicates, the way that social media algorithms uh, function, the way that kids learn in schools, right? And I felt like I could have written a whole nother book on changing those structures. The problem is that I think, I think you're a systems thinker. I think that you want to see large scale change. And I think the average reader would not read that book because they would feel helpless and hopeless. Like I can't do anything about schools at scale or governments, right? And so I think in some ways you're the audience for the sequel, which is the policy book or the, like, here's, here's what we do as collectively as opposed to individuals. Uh, yeah, well, when you just, you just said something about systems and, 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 and thanks, that's Andrew Reason's highest compliment as someone's a systems thinker. So thank you for that, I'll take it. But um, I've been thinking a lot about charter schools. And what I've been thinking about is the emotions related to charter schools. 
And it's great, the part of your book, which isn't about charter schools, but it's about you know, the funding for uh, preschools and how that was a great topic. But what I thought about was, I was recently in a room full of very, very smart, engaged, well-read people. And this topic came up and everybody became the worst version of themselves. Mm. And it, it uh, and then I started thinking about Kozel's Savage Inequality, which I'm sure you read, and and that your so in all the ways that he was right, and we all thought everything would change from that book. Uh, your book reminded me of Savage Inequalities because I felt like we are all East St. Louis now. That this, not we're all, I mean, I'm, I'm not in any way just to say, because we're so reactive. I'm not in any way comparing myself to a kid in an East St. Louis school in 1992. I, I understand that the difference. What I am saying though, is that I read your book and I feel you're describing, because Kozel knows the answers in that book, the same way you know the answers. Yet culturally, we were not prepared. We changed nothing. And even when people have an idea, I don't know if charters, I truly don't know if charter schools are good or bad. I can't, I don't know. Uh, I think like you said about the disease, like a charter school is good and a charter school may be bad. <laughs> like I, but, but, um, but having the answers and enacting, without, having the answers without an, uh, a method by which to enact the answers just feels difficult. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's fair. I think, so I'll tell you where, where I came down on this, which was, I don't have the answers in the book. The problem is complex. And I think the solutions are too, right? And many of them individually only move the needle a little bit. What I thought was that if I wrote the book and gave people a framework for how to think of this, that it would be the beginning of conversations with people who are in a position to drive structural and cultural change. And yes. so I see this as a beginning of, of a conversation, right? As opposed to love that. Here, here is love here that. is gift wrapped your, you know, your dream fix for everything that's wrong in this country. Yes. I have a hypothesis. Uh, and this is where I wanted to interview you a little bit. I'm going to try to yes. practice what I attempt to teach in the book. Okay. And say, Brian, it, it seems to me, and this is a hypothesis. So please tell me if I'm wrong. It seems to me that if, if we understand confirmation bias being, you know, seeing what you expect to see and desirability bias probably being even more pernicious, seeing what you want to see. Yes. It seems to me that you have spent the past five years immersing yourself in the hardest versions of extreme ideology um, and calcified beliefs and worrying about this, trying to influence it and just seeing how hard it was. And so you came into this book with a prior that, even some of the things that I might've written about were new, that were new. You're like, well, that, that's not going to solve this. Like, no, this is, this is way harder than that. And what I wondered is, yeah. um, are you, are you see, are, are you a little bit, because of your concern for democracy, have you made yourself a little bit of a victim of binary bias that you immediately go to the rare extreme of people that are completely impen impenetrable? Question. <laughs> no, it's a wonderful question. I would say, like, I, I also want to answer you. I want to play the game really fairly, and I want to answer yes to you, but I would suggest where I have binary thinking is on things like fascism and authoritarianism versus democracy. Uh, I actually, Maybe that should be binary, by the way. I actually have a huge um, interest and curiosities. Curiosity is always what's driven everything I've ever done um, professionally, and... And so the reason I say like I read everything, so what I've tried to do no, I mean, to, to be really truthful, the project, the, the promise I made myself this year was to really try to read what I think is the best and most um, nonpartisan in any of these ways magazine, The Economist be the one thing I read the completely every week from beginning to end. It's very hard to do. It takes the whole week to read every article and it. it's impossible, but I've been doing I've that never to tried. try to- Dude, it's, it's so hard, but so worth it. It's unbelievably worth it because they're so smart and they're so, they're, they are rigorously trying to be fair as hard as they can, you know? Mm -hmm. And the, probably their bent is not mine. Like, you know what I mean? Um, but yes, of course we all have PTSD and I definitely have PTSD. The desirability bias would be to want 
this change to work and then to yes. feel, feel bad that um, I've been disappointed so many times. I, so I understand that. But I think I do think that it's also the being 54 years old, not 39, and taking the ride with Jonathan Kozel in 1991. Mm, interesting. So you have change fatigue or change cynicism after too many failed attempts. Yeah, change, but it's not, and it's and it's because your ideas are so good. Now I have a couple of things to say. One is I did this in a little bit of a meta way. So, and I know people do listen to the whole podcast. So they listen. So. Here's why Adam Grant is so great, because he is exactly who he says he is in his books, because all he asks for in the books is for conversations to happen like this, uh, debate and rigor and people coming to the table prepared and willing to listen and willing to ask each other questions. And that if you're willing to do that, you have the possibility to change your mind and that it's maybe worth changing your mind, because if you can uh, change your mind, you might get to a better understanding, a deeper understanding in the world might be easier. Now, none of this was performance. Like I believe everything that I said, but, uh, I did want to engage in this kind of conversation with you because the thing that gave me hope in the book, Adam, and the thing that I think everyone listening doesn't need system, any kind of systemic change to deal with is in the book is every recipe you need to make your personal relationships better and to make your relationships with your colleagues better, to make your relationships in your meetings better, to make your relationships with your family better. That stuff is all in the book and is incredibly inspiring and incredibly useful. As I say, like I've read a bunch of the source material just on my own, the, other than the original work you did, which is tons of original work. But every time I read something like this and I'm reminded of leading with questions and I'm reminded of not uh, coming to certain conclusions, it enables much more open-hearted relationships. And so for that, I, I think the book is amazing. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I'm pleasantly surprised to hear you say that, but it's, it's interesting because I, I felt a tension throughout this conversation between wanting to do a little bit of preaching and prosecuting to, you know, to undo your sadness, if nothing else. Yes. And, and also to to do what I'm supposed to do, which is I believe in these ideas and my job on book tour is to spread them, right? And to, yes. to make the case for them, even though I'm open to rethinking all of them because I know there are things that I'm going to learn that just like with every other book, like, oh man, I wish I could have rewritten that in the first version as opposed to the revision. But the, I, there was a part of me that thought, well, what I really should do, if if in this conversation, like, I don't want you to be sad, right? And I, I think what I took away from from some of the back and forth is, you were maybe micro hopeful, but macro discouraged. Yes. Uh, which is, which I think is fair. Me too. That's like, that's why I wrote the book mostly for individuals and groups. And, but also that's what I do as an organizational psychologist. Yes. Like I, I don't know how to do the policy level stuff, but there's a part of me that thinks if that was, if my goal was really to address that, I should have spent a lot more time saying, yeah, Brian, I feel really bad that I made you sad. That's obviously not what I aspired to when I wrote the book. Tell me a little bit more about what's behind that. And then just ask you a series of questions to understand what discouraged you and where I would have landed then was saying, okay, what experiences have you had over the last five years that made you so hopeless about the larger scale changes? And we might've landed at the same place, but maybe with a little less tug of war and a little bit more of me having aha moments along the way and saying, oh, that's kind of interesting. Like, what? How did you land there? And did you think I was, was I um, uh, debating or was I uh, arguing? No. I want to no, no, know no. which I, thing, what was going on in terms no. of- I, I didn't feel that at all. I felt like we, we had an interesting, thoughtful conversation right. where both of our thinking evolved as we talked. But I, I did feel a slight tension between persuading and learning. And I think because we're doing this for a podcast, I erred more on the side of persuading than I would like to if I actually ironically wanted to change your mind. <laughs> well, we can, that's great. Well, we can do that any any time. Actually. Yeah. We could have as many of these conversations, uh, uh, you know, not with a microphone in front of us as we want to. Though I would talk to you with a microphone anytime in front of any audience because you're so fascinating and you're so smart, Adam, and, and uh, you're such a deep thinker and such a good writer. You mentioned quickly that you had this big change in middle school because your your friend group excommunicated you. Um, I know somebody that happened to, someone I'm close to, uh, and uh, I know what a jarring 
thing and how it comes in waves. And I, I just wanna know, did you learn lessons from that over time or did everything change in an instant? Both, definitely both. I think I was lucky because when my core friend group dropped me, I had a couple really close friends who weren't, they were on the periphery of that group yes. and we got even closer and they stood up for me in a big way. Uh, so I think that that in the moment <laughs> led me to say, okay, what am I trying to do here? Am I trying to be part of a cool crowd? I'm clearly not cool. Or do I want to have good friends? And then I think over time, what I learned from it was that I was more interested in being right than being liked. And that is not always a recipe for satisfying relationships. Very useful to, to know. Uh, and then this whole idea of uh, we think about what we're going to feel about certain things and then they happen. I, I, you know, you've had an extraordinarily successful uh, academic life and commercial publishing life. I, I'm just really curious what, you know, everyone talks about you as like the youngest tenured professor. You're not anymore, but you know, you were the youngest tenured professor, blah, blah. Annoying how they take those away, by the way. Uh, yeah, but it seems, <laughs> well, there's like the guy who started the effective altruism thing. I think he beat you, right? Uh, but, um, but here's the question. Um, by its fact, isn't tenure itself in direct opposition to uh, a lot of what you write about here? Isn't it, uh, doesn't it lock in a whole bunch of stuff and not leave it open to being rethought by the institution or the students? And I understand the freedoms that come with tenure, but isn't there a flip side to tenure? There might be, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I've, I've mostly thought about it in terms of all the freedom it gives me to rethink. Yes. <laughs> and I, I do think that's important. Uh, you know, partic particularly in fields that, you know, that are, are having a life-changing impact on people, right? So yes. I, like, I, I want the vaccine scientists to have tenure, <laughs> for example, right? right? Uh, in terms of, you know, especially if you imagine yourself in one of those authoritarian regimes that you're, you know, yes. that you're extremely concerned about, like how, how quickly do the scientists speaking the truth or what's, what's the accepted version of the truth get silenced, right? So I think in that sense, it's extremely important. Um, but yeah, I think a university making a lifelong commitment to someone and not having the opportunity to rethink that, it's a little bit like abolishing divorce in, in marriages. It's weird, you know? right? It's a yeah, little, it, it's it, just- It is a little strange. Uh, and I think that there's some European universities that are rethinking that. Uh, if you go to IMD Business School in Switzerland, for example, they will give you a, I think it's a five to seven year contract uh, and the way that they prevent all the short-termism that we worry about from kicking in is they say, look, you know what? We want you to, to write out your, your ambitious research agenda for the next five to seven years. We don't know necessarily what you're going to find, but we want to agree that the problems that you're tackling are important. And then we'll see how that five to seven years went. And then you can apply for renewal. And if I didn't have a vested interest in having tenure, I would say that sounds like a pretty smart system. Right. Yes. And but, yet but Brian, here's why I want to unthink that rethinking. I think without tenure, in addition to the free speech concerns yes. that we just discussed, the other issue is I just don't think you're going to attract the talent to academia otherwise. I, I know when I considered a tech career, uh, I thought, okay, I'll probably earn a lot more you know, in a real job and, you know, in business or, or something like that. But in academia, I can have permanent job security. And that means I will get to design my own job. And I think that freedom is so important for recruiting. That's a great answer. So everybody listen, uh, here for, for, for Adam's book to affect me this much and to cause me to sort of go, uh, just be this direct and to ask these kind of questions and for us to engage in this conversation, I hope it's clear that it's a, a mandatory book for you to read because, uh, it has stirred me up. Like, uh, not that, not, not much that I've, I've read lately. And, as you can tell from the podcast, I've read a lot in this area. Uh, and um, so I, I truly think people should go and, and, and read the book and follow you on social. Yes. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. You've, you've actually made me rethink something pretty big in this conversation, which is, although I feel a little guilty about you being sad after reading the book, I wonder if that's not an entirely bad thing. Uh, I'm thinking about the, the work by evolutionary psychologists like Randy Nessie arguing that depression actually serves a function. 
uh, at least mild depression, right? I don't, I don't know that major depression serves anyone, but no. you know, be, being a little bit blue, being a bit discouraged, um, that actually has a broadening effect. There's this Eddie Harmon Jones work that I think is really clever that shows that um, uh, you know, light sadness actually sort of expands your aperture. Right? It forces you to take the wide angle lens and ask, well, what, what, what's wrong? What might I need to do differently? And so it. I wonder if a little bit of sadness is a prompt for rethinking, and I wonder where that will lead you. I feel like it was a useful, no, I don't feel bad. I, um, feeling sad meant that I was affected deeply by what you wrote. And so uh, I, I greatly appreciate it. Hey, will you send me a little reading list of stuff you think I should read in this area that I might've missed? I would really like that. Like, I don't know those two things you just referenced and whatever else you think I should know, I, I would really appreciate it. Go promote your book. Uh, thank you very much. Everybody could find me on uh, Twitter at Brian Koppelman. You can find Adam on Twitter also at Adam M. Grant. Adam M. Grant. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. We will see you next time. <laughs>